Welcome. Welcome, Sunday Morning Crew. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, you know what? We say a couple things here often, and I want to say them again. It's, it's this, that we are the church for anybody, but we're not the church for everybody. We say that all the time here. Now, you have to understand a few things when I say that. First, you have to understand, what is the church? Now, when I say the church, what do you think of? I don't know. If you grew up in the church, you might think it's the most boring hour or most boring hour and a half, depending on what denomination you grew up in. Other people think, no, the church is a building. Other people think the church is a nice nonprofit that does good deeds. Other people think, oh, the church is a social club. Other people think the church is a building. Let me tell you what the church is. The church are the people of God who gather on purpose. Now, there's lots of purposes, right? Prayer, to come together to pray, to worship, to fellowship, to be encouraged, to be edified. And here's what I want you to understand just for a minute, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to jump in the sermon, and we're halfway through Mark, and we're going to have a good time together this morning. Um, but what I want you to understand, if you're new, you come around for a while, you're watching online, because uh, every week we have lots of new guests, and we have new visitors, and we have people checking us out. And here's a deep conviction, and this isn't just a two cities conviction, this is a Bible conviction. The Christian life is supposed to be church-shaped. Let me say that one more time. So the Christian life, and if you're a Christian, I'm hoping you're trying to live a Christian life. And so at the foundation of the Christian life is that it should be church-shaped. So you have to understand what the church is, and then hopefully you would connect yourself to a local church, right? Because ah, you've heard the phrase before, right? It takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a church to raise a Christian. And becoming more like Christ is a community project, right? We need each other. You're needy and you're needed. In fact, there's a lot of uh, one another's in scripture. You know, some of them love one another and pray for one another and forgive one another and bear one another's burdens. And we want to be a church that one another's one another. <laughs> it sounds kind of strange, but yes, that's what we want to do. And so the question though, if you're not a part of a church, you're a Christian, but you're not part of a church, who are you one anothering? Well, you might not know. And God wants us to one another each other in a very specific way. And so how do we do that at our church? It's the weekender. So we have nine of these a year. We've got two left. We've got one coming up in two weeks. And then we've got one we're going to have in December as well. And I just want to let you know, if, if you've not connected your life to God's global purposes through our church, I just want to invite you to do that. And if you're coming around and you've just decided, we're never going to come to the weekender. We're just going to come. We're going to be a consumer, not a contributor. We're going to be a a taker, not a giver, it's going to get really awkward. <laughs> and it's going to get really uncomfortable because we're going to continue to call you up and call you out and call you in, and you're going to want to consume instead of contribute. So let me just invite you to take your next step. And let me just pray for us because what the weekender is, like for Christians, there's a lot of lines in the sand. Baptism is a line in the sand, but for a lot of people, it's I'm not going to do this alone anymore. I'm going to move from being unknown to known. I'm going to move from being part of the crowd to connected and committed. So I'm just going to pray for us that, that people would take their next step all across all of our services this weekend. And, uh, and then we're going to dive into Mark and see uh, the toughest teaching of Jesus in the book of Mark. Let's pray. Lord, we just come to you right now and we pray for all the people, Lord, that just need to make decisions about coming to the weekender. And I know what happens because I've been doing this a while now. Um, a lot of times one spouse wants to go and the other doesn't. Or there's, there's fear of what is, it, what is it gonna look like for me to actually be committed? What is it gonna look like for me to actually be known? But there's also just so much joy, Lord. Every person in here is needy. We need other people. We can't see ourselves by ourselves. And we're also needed. Our personalities, our skill sets, our spiritual gifts. So we just pray that we would be a church where people come in and they understand the Christian life fundamentally and foundationally as connecting themselves to a local church. 
and having their Christianity shaped by that local church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, open up to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, guys. I told you this before. We are halfway through a 20-week series, okay? So if you're joining us today, we are in what is called, if you take notes in your Bible, it's okay to write in your Bible, okay? Or if you're on your phone or your app, you can type this in here. We are in the continental divide in the book of Mark. We're at a place of transition. Everything is changing from this moment on. Okay, so far, Jesus has talked to crowds a lot. He's debated with the Pharisees. He's done healings. He's done exorcisms. And everybody notices that today, in the passage we're going to look at, in fact, we're going to look at a very short passage. We've been looking at almost a chapter each week here, a little less than a chapter sometimes, but we're going to look at, I think it's 11 or 12 verses this morning. And, And this is the moment where Jesus stops talking to the crowds fundamentally and starts talking to his disciples. And here's what Jesus has been doing, but he's really going to do deeply today, start doing, is he is going to prepare his disciples for his death and his departure. That's it. So it's going to mean more investment. It's going to mean more clarity of teaching. It's going to be more talking about the cross. And so uh, he's going to do two things, and they're connected, and we'll see them both. And this is the whole message. And some of you say, Kyle, you talk fast, so I just need, you need to slow down and just tell me what this is about. So here it is. Uh, Jesus is going to do two things. He's going to predict his death, and he's going to preach about our discipleship. That's it. That's the whole passage. Predict his own death, preach about what it means to be a disciple. And here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, that your life and my life, if we're Christians, should be cross-centered and cross-shaped. We'll look at both of those. They're a little different, but they're connected. The cross is at the center of both. He's gonna say that at the center of our faith should be the cross. The center of our faith should not be good deeds. The center of our faith should not be relationships. The center of our faith should not be rituals. The center of our faith should not be feelings. All those things can be good. The center of our faith needs to be the cross, and then he's gonna put the cross at the center of, yes, what we believe. We sing songs about it, we pray, we celebrate it. And then he's going to say something even a little bit more profound. He's going to say the cross needs to be what shapes our life. It's like, well, the cross is an instrument of death. The cross is an instrument of suffering. The cross is an instrument of opposition. And so what I'm preaching this morning is what we call in the pastor world a seat-clearing sermon, okay? We have tried to move some of you to Saturday nights, and you won't, you won't move. <laughs> So, I, so I'm going to preach this text, and the, hopefully there'll be more seats open next week. <laughs> let's, let's look together. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Here we go. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, let's just talk about location just for a minute here. It's interesting. Most people think about ministry in formal context. That's probably how you think about it. You think about your Christian life in formal context. Well, you know, I go to church and then I have community group and then I have DNA group and then I'm on a serving team and I had a Bible study and I went to youth group and I went to camp and we love all those things, okay? But those are all formal ministries. Most of Jesus' ministry did not happen within the four walls of a, well, we would say church or he might say synagogue or temple. In fact, what's interesting is sometimes he goes to the darkest places to reveal the most light. Caesarea Philippi was the darkest sin city of the day, okay? It was the Las Vegas of that day. Or if you're in North Carolina, Asheville, okay? That's what it was, (laughs) right? I love this because it says something about Jesus. If Jesus was gonna go somewhere uh, in Winston-Salem, he might say, if I'm gonna announce something big, maybe I'll go down to Trade Street. Or if I'm gonna announce something big, maybe let's go to Wake Forest. I wanna go to the frat houses. That's, That's what he's saying. In fact, the God they worshiped there was Pan. Do you know what Pan means? Pan means everything. That's why Peter Pan is named Peter Pan, because Peter Pan's life is about everything. 
and at the same time, nothing. And so it's in this environment that Jesus is going to announce something, but he's going to start it with a question. This is what Jesus does. Let's look here. And on the way, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, why does Jesus ask that question? Is he an insecure middle schooler? Who, you know, you ever have that? You're in middle school and you're asking your friends, what, what does she think about me? Am I cool? What do they think? No, he's not. He's not insecure. Um, is it that he's unsure of who he is and he needs other people to tell him? Well, we're going to see in a moment. No, he's not insecure and he's not unsure. In fact, Jesus is, this is an interesting thing. If you do what's called comparative religion and you compare Buddhism and Islam and other religions and you look at the major religious teachers, Jesus is the most self-centered, self-focused, self-directed of all the teachers. All the other religions of the world, their main teacher points away from themselves. Hey, read that book and go over there and worship that. Follow that. Follow him. Jesus says, follow me, worship me, obey me. And so he's asking a question, and then let's see what they say. So, so here's what they say here. Look here. And they told him, verse 28 now, they told him, John the Baptist, we'll talk about who he is in a second, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. Okay, so here's what's happening. People of that day had an idea of who Jesus was. You, you hear three things. They're basically the same, right? John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophets. Let's put them kind of in a category. But John the Baptist, okay, that's a compliment. Because Jesus himself said there was no greater man who ever lived than John the Baptist. So if I called you John the Baptist or you called me John the Baptist, I mean, that would be like, if we're thinking biblically, that'd be like the highest compliment you could get. But it's not necessarily a compliment when you're the sinless son of God, okay? <laughs> the other thing they say is, well, maybe he's a prophet. Or maybe he's one of the prophets, or maybe he's Elijah. Here's what they're saying. They're saying he's good, but not God. He's sweet, but not a savior. He's likable, but not Lord. It's interesting. I don't think this is that different than how our culture views Jesus today. It's interesting. I thought about this a while, and I may be wrong. But when I thought, how does the American culture today view Jesus? And here's what I think. I think pretty positive, but just has a partial understanding of who he is. That was my experience. Some of you know I spent four years doing ministry at Duke. And in my mind, every time I was driving to Duke, though it was eight minutes from my house, I felt like I was heading into the center of Manhattan. That's what it felt culturally. And all I ever did was talk to people there about Jesus. I mean, that's why I was there. And what I found was most people, if they represent society, the heart of the American culture, they had a pretty positive view of Jesus. I'm not saying they had a positive view of the church. They didn't. I'm not saying they had a positive view of Christians. They don't. And I'm not sure how Jesus got extrapolated out and isolated from, but people liked Jesus. I'm not saying they liked the biblical Jesus. And they had some idea of Jesus. Maybe it was the Jesus of Christmas, eight-pound baby Jesus. <laughs> the Jesus of the cradle, not the Jesus of the cross. And so here's what I want us to understand here, and this is an, a burden. Part of what we have to embrace if we're going to be the church of Christ is we have to embrace some of these burdens. And here's the truth. If we don't tell people the biblical Jesus and who he is, they're going to replace it with whatever they've been told in their culture. I mean, where are, the, where are people learning about Jesus? Their New Testament class? Their first year of college? Their religion class? The History Channel? Is that even still on? I don't know. A documentary? Jesus' appearances on South Park and Family Guy? Some of you don't want to admit that you watch those shows. Okay, there you go. Uh, we're, we're, it's like, okay, well, Jesus gets more personal. Look what he does next. Here's what he says. 
And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? This is verse 29. He says, who do you say that I am? Real quick on this, it just lets us know that every person has to answer this question. We can't hide. We may try for a time. We can't hide behind what other people say about Jesus. He's like, all right, enough about that. But what do you say? And if you grow up in a Christian home, it's easy to hide behind, well, my, this is what my parents say. Well, this is what my church believes. Well, this is what my youth pastor says about Jesus. Well, fair enough, and we're glad you have all those people in your life, but what do you say about Jesus? And look at this response. This is really interesting. So Peter responds. Look, look here. Verse uh, 29, halfway through. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. In Matthew's gospel, he goes a little farther and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So, okay, here's the thing about Peter. We love Peter. Peter speaks first and for all the disciples, right? Like as you get to know people, even as you kind of have your own kids and everything, you'll realize that some of your kids are what we call covert. And some of your kids are what we call overt. Covert is, I don't know what they're thinking. They don't tell me the truth all the time. I don't know what's going on. A, a overt person just tells you exactly what they're thinking all the time. Like, okay, well, now I know. Peter is an overt person, and he speaks first, and often, he, I said, he also speaks for the other disciples. And here's what he says, you are the Christ. Now, listen, this is so important because this is, we're going to camp out on this for a minute. This is the first confession of faith in the Bible. This is the first, Peter is the first person in the history of the church to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And here's what I want us to understand, that at the center of Christianity is a confession of faith. I mean, this is what Paul says, right? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. I mean, this is Christianity 101. And connected to that, that confession needs to come from the heart. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This is it. You'll be saved. It's like, that's everything. So it's a confession. Now, here's what I want us to understand, that, that Christianity is at its heart confessional. Here's what that means. Uh, no one is a Christian by circumstance. No one is a Christian by coincidence. No one should be a Christian by convenience. You, you become a Christian because you go, this is what I really believe. Like I'm a, like, so here's an interesting thing. I went to seminary and I had to take all these church history classes and I actually really enjoyed them. I think I'd take four church history classes because there's a lot of things that happened in 2000 years. And one of the interesting things is you read church history and it's a little confusing at first because you know, there's the rapid expansion of the gospel and there's churches planted. And then when you get to the 300s and the 400s, everybody's writing creeds. You, you've said them and they don't even know them. There's the Apostles' Creed. There's the Nicene Creed. There's lots of creeds. In fact, a couple years ago, actually more than a couple years ago, about 15 years ago, I was in London. And I went to Westminster Abbey, and this won't mean much to many of you, but in Westminster Abbey, there's, it's, there's a room when you go into the right, and the guard let me in there. And in that room was written the Westminster Confession of Faith. Look that up sometime. It's one of the most famous Christian documents ever written. A bunch of men gathered together for weeks to write it. And what they were writing down is, this is what we believe. Now, when I say that, some people go, well, that's silly. It's really silly that Christians would have a confession. It's really silly that Christians would write down what they believe. Do you understand the secular world is doing the exact same thing right now? We live in the most secular time in the history of our nation and so now what we see is secular creeds. So I'm walking yesterday in preparation for this message and I'm just walking around West End because it's near our church offices and what do I see in many, many yards in West End? The yard sign. 
the yard sign with the secular creed on it. And you look at it, women's rights are human rights. Water is life. No human is illegal. Science is real. What does all that mean? Well, I don't know. They're short three, four letter, or not letter, words. <laughs> They're not even full sentences often. What it's, it, it's somebody, can, those are all over, right? They're in Ardmore, they're in Buena Vista. They're, they're the secular creed. This is, it's their way to go. This is what we believe. And what you have when you have secular creeds, also what happens is, and this is uniquely something I want to talk about, is the confession of faith, Jesus is Lord, historically in the church happened at baptism. So this is, you ever wonder, in a couple weeks here, we're going to be doing baptisms. Baptism is the place where you publicly, for the first time, or if you've been a Christian for a while and you never got to do this, you publicly profess faith in Christ. And let me just talk about water baptism for a second because it's important. Because here's what happens. In baptism, three things happen. The first thing that happens in water baptism is when somebody stands, historically they've stood here, we have them sit in a horse trough, but uh, when, when somebody stands in water baptism or sits, uh, what, they, what they say is three things. Number one, they say, I no longer follow the world. It's a big moment if they know what they're doing. I'm... My back is now toward the world and my face is toward Christ. And this is a decisive break with the world. The second thing they say is the church is now my main family. And that's why, historically, baptisms have been done in churches, or at least with lots of Christians watching. You know, can you get baptized with a few friends, you know, in a swimming pool? We can talk about it. But in general, no. (laughs) And the reason is because the, the, the church wants to celebrate with you. But here's the third thing and what's been completely missing because it, it's, it's the American mindset. The third thing that happens with baptism is it's the way the church tells the person in the water, your confession is real and you really are a Christian. So here's something that you may have never thought of before. How do you know you're a Christian if you've not been baptized? Well, I just know. I cried at camp. I had all the feelings inside. I said a prayer. How many people do we know that are self-deceived? How often have you deceived yourself? How, you can't know yourself by yourself. So <laughs> baptism is the way the church goes. Brother, sister, we've listened to your testimony and we've seen your life and we've heard your presentation of the gospel and we're not JV Holy Spirit. But as much as we can tell, we think this is legitimate. So the confession, Christ is Lord, is meant to happen publicly and be affirmed by people watching. This is why years ago we had a guy, he came to Christ in our church and talking to him about baptism. And for lots of people, for some of you, baptism's the issue. And he said, I need to get baptized. I said, I know you need to get baptized. You just came to Christ. He says, here's what I want to do. I want to do it. And he mentioned a random state. And he mentioned that he wanted to do it in the month of May. This is like six months from now. And he mentioned he wanted to do it in a certain river. And he mentioned he wanted to do it after a certain event. And he mentioned he wanted a certain group of people there. And I had to say to him on the phone, dude, I said, I say it really nicely. I said, baptism is not about you. I'm sorry. (laughs) We've even taken the main sacrament of the church and made it about ourselves. No, no, no. It's about my opportunity to tell the world I follow Jesus. What does it feel like? Well, it feels like this. When my wife and I got engaged, we were in Chattanooga, Tennessee, 
We told our parents. Our friends knew it was going to happen. They didn't know when it was going to happen. And so we get engaged, and we just decided, I don't know why we did this. We decided for the first three or four days not to tell anyone. Just like it was, my parents were there. We, we hung out. We were in Chattanooga for a few days. We're picking out the wedding venues, all this. And then as we're heading home, we decided it's time to, t- it's time to text our friends, and it's time to put it on Facebook. You know, it's time to tell the world, you know. And what's interesting is as soon as we did it, like really almost as soon as we did it, we weren't more engaged, but immediately it felt more real. We felt more engaged, if that's possible. And I think that's what baptism does. It doesn't save you. But if you want your faith to feel real, like I I did it. It's public and everyone knows. So what Peter does there is he confesses. Now, look what happens. Here's what Jesus, here's what happens uh, after that. Verse 31, and Jesus, or he, began to teach that the son of man, that's Jesus' favorite designation for himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So interesting. So the confession of faith is you are the Christ, which means you are Lord, you are the king, you are the anointed. And what Jesus does is he, he says, I'm the son of man. And by the way, just a little theology here. Oh, that, that term is out of Daniel 7, and it's a very famous Old Testament passage about the greatness of the coming Messiah. And what Jesus does is he takes, let's do a little math here. He takes Daniel 7 plus Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the passage on the suffering servant. And he says, it's the same person. The suffering servant and the son of man are the same person. It's me. And here's what he's saying. And this is, I don't know how to simplify what Jesus is teaching any more than this. He's saying, Peter, you're speaking for all the disciples, so all the disciples, um, you're right. I'm a king, but I'm a king with a cross. It's like, phew. like I, I'm a king heading to a cross. And so it's right after they realize who Jesus is that he begins to teach them in great depth about the cross. Look here. I want to read one more time. He says this, he began to teach him that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So a couple things. He puts the cross at the center of what he's doing, right? And we just need to be shocked again at the cross. I mean, because we, we, we have the cross around our neck. We see the cross on buildings. I mean, it would be like Jesus saying, I need to go to the electric chair. It's like, dude, that sounds terrible. I need to go to a place where there's lethal injection. It's like, you are talking about an instrument of death. See, what the cross represents is opposition. And that's an interesting thought, because you notice that in his promise, in his prophecy, in his prediction, is that he has to be rejected. And it says, it's interesting, it says he has to be rejected by the best people of the day. That's something we're thinking about. The Literally the best people of the day, the political leaders, the religious establishment, the wealthy, the famous, the powerful, they all reject Jesus. The cross represents opposition. The cross represents suffering. Do you know, I mean, the cross, the Romans were amazing at killing people. And the cross is the way that they perfected, well, not just killing you, because obviously the cross leads to death, prolonged suffering. And, and I just, I talked about the cross last week and, and so I don't need to go into too much depth here, but I want you to understand how the disciples are gonna hear this is 
Jesus Christ is voluntarily heading to the cross. Do you see the main word in there? The main word in there, what's called, you can see it better in the original language Greek, the controlling word in that sentence is the word must. Do you see it there? He doesn't just say, the son of man needs to, you know, the son of man's gonna be killed and be rejected and suffer and rise. He says, he, this must happen. This is what theologians call the divine necessity of the cross. It was according to the will of God. This is something that in the mind and heart of God had to happen. And there's kind of two ways to think about the cross. The cross was both planned and it was voluntary. It was planned. We don't have all the information about this except we get things in the book of Revelation that says the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. You're like, what does that mean? That means it was in God's mind and heart to send his son even before he created the world because he knew we were gonna sin and fall. So he just, okay, God, you planned this? And then that fact, how about this, that it was voluntary. Jesus didn't have to do it. I mean, must because he and the father decided according to the scriptures, according to the will of God, I'm gonna do it. But I think one of the things that just humbles you is you realize, wait a second, Jesus didn't have to do this. He could have left us in our sin. He could have left us to ourselves. But instead, he comes after us. Now, I want you to see what Peter does. Peter sees this for what it is. (laughs) Look at this. So Peter, verse 32, and Jesus said this plainly, right? I don't wanna mix words. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Awkward, a little bit here. We've got the student rebuking the teacher. The word rebuke is the same word that is used by Jesus to demons. It's like, man, this is, it's intense, it's heated, it's angry. Peter rebukes him. Now, here's the question to ask. Why is Peter rebuking Jesus? Why does Peter not want Jesus to go to the cross? Is it because Peter just loves Jesus so much? I don't think so. I think he loves the Lord. I think he respects him. I think he wants to follow him. But I don't think the reason that Peter gets so passionate and starts rebuking Jesus is because he's worried about Jesus dying. Here's what Peter's worried about. Peter dying. That's it. Peter understands something that we need to understand. This is why this is a hard text and a hard sermon. Peter understands, wait a second, if this is where you're headed, then what does this mean for me and the rest of the guys? I mean, we follow and worship a guy who was crucified, betrayed, rejected. I mean, what are the expectations that you have for your life? (laughs) A lot of times people come to faith in Christ and they think, well, this will be great because, you know, maybe... Maybe Jesus will heal up my marriage, heal up my family. We always pray for that and hope that, but Jesus also says, sometimes I can't bring a sword. People come to Christ, well, maybe, maybe, you know, Jesus and plus Dave Ramsey and we'll get my finances cleaned up. And then sometimes you lose your job for being a Christian. It's it's not easy to to tell. Here's, Here's the thing. At the center of Christianity is voluntary suffering. I don't know how else to explain this text. And, and what Peter understands is he rebukes him because here's what it means. We say here that the Christian life is following Jesus and helping others find and follow Jesus. But I probably haven't explained enough what is following Jesus. Following Jesus is joining Jesus 
in what Jesus came to do. I think that's a fair definition of following Jesus. We're joining Jesus in what Jesus came to do. Now, sometimes we go, well, that sounds fun. So making disciples, yeah, yeah. Helping people, yes. Counseling, yes. Teaching, yes. But how? What was his main method? Voluntary suffering. We're not masochists. But I voluntarily embrace pain and suffering in my life. And I understand that's the main way the gospel is going to go forward. Well, Peter doesn't like that, so he rebukes him, but then Jesus rebukes him back. Look here. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Because the last interaction Jesus had with Satan, Satan tried to do the same thing to Jesus. He tried to get him to not go to the cross. Here's the satanic spirit. And I believe there's a satanic spirit. The satanic spirit is that which looks for the shortcut. Is there a way, Jesus, bow down to me and you can have everything now? The satanic spirit thinks that there's somehow you can have a Christianity without the cross. That somehow you get to go to glory but without going through suffering. And so Jesus rebukes him and he says, get behind me. And then he goes on, so this is the key moment. So now Jesus moves from his death to our discipleship. He moves from how his life is cross-centered to how our life now needs to be cross-shaped. And, and it's inextricably linked. You, you can't miss this. Look, look here. In calling the crowd to him, we're in verse 34. In calling the crowd to him, notice, by the way, often Jesus will, will give his hardest teaching to mass groups of people. So this is his hardest teaching, and he makes sure, hold on, everyone get in here. I want everyone, not just my disciples. He calls the crowd. It says this, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone, that's a big call, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I love that. First of all, he's just making a hard call. Does anyone want to come after me? Does anyone think of their Christianity that way? Like, what's your Christianity? I'm coming after Jesus Christ. It's like, I am aggressively and assertively, I'm running as fast and as far as I can following Jesus. So he makes this call. He says, if anyone's going to come after me, look what he says there. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great German pastor, thinker, philosopher, and fighter of Hitler, he called this costly grace, not cheap grace. He said in America and in Germany, people had embraced cheap grace. He said cheap grace had become assumed. Grace had become presumed upon. Grace had become common. And he says grace for most people justifies the sinner. Sorry, justifies sin, but not the sinner. He said costly grace is that tension that Christianity Becoming a Christian costs me nothing, but living as a Christian life will cost me everything. I heard it said this way. A guy told a story. He said, my, explaining this point, he said, uh, he said his dad, growing up, his dad didn't have a lot of money, and he loved to play baseball. And he said his dad would give him the same speech every baseball season. He said, and, he said, and it was embarrassing because he usually would give it to me in front of my friends. <laughs> and he said the speech went something like this. Son, I don't make a lot of money. So if I pay, you play. And he said, and then dad would go on. He says, and two things I mean by play. Number one, there ain't no quitting. 
Not quitting halfway through the season, not getting tired, not complaining. If we're going to start the season, if I pay, you play. And then he said, second rule, son, if I, pay, if I pay, you play on the field. He goes, I'm not paying to watch you do what I'm doing, which is watch other kids play. <laughs> they don't make dads like that anymore. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and he made this great point. He said, you know, you have to understand this in a gospel center way. Christ has done everything for us. But Christ is saying, I paid. It's time for you to play. And then he says this. He says, you're called to deny yourself. Notice, that's different than self-denial. Anybody can practice self-denial. Every American, usually after their birthday and on New Year's, writes down some resolutions or some habits or some goals, and it's usually some form of self-denial. I don't need to drink that. I need to stop eating that. I need to stop watching that. I probably need to spend less on this. Fair enough. That's called self-denial. Jesus is talking about something deeper. He's talking about denying yourself. It's like, what does that mean? That's hard. We live in a selfie culture, right? People have tried to think, like, what is the obsession with the selfie? And it has something to do with this. I'm the center of everything. The world is the background for me. And it's interesting because we are as depressed and lonely and anxious as ever. And we have put the self at the center, right? How about self-care? I know you have to care for yourself so you can care for others. Put your oxygen mask on first. I get it. But most people, self-care is an excuse to be selfish. How about self-fulfillment? That's a new idea. Could you imagine talking to your great-grandpa? Grandpa, is your job fulfilling? What? <laughs> I work on the railroad. <laughs> How about self-expression? That happens at a lot younger age. Self-expression normally starts in elementary school or middle school. Self-expression is, well, it's a part of what they say the culture that we live in, if people who try to talk about it, we live in what's called in a expressive individualism culture. That's, unless you're working against it, that's what you're believing in. And expressive individualism is, let me find out who I am inside and let me figure out the best way to tell everybody. So it's the clothes I wear. It's the uncool glasses I wear. It's the car I drive. It's the neighborhood I live in. It's my social media platform. And it's why there's so much gender confusion today. Because we've told people sexuality is the center of you, now go find it. And then go express it to everybody. And Jesus comes and he says the opposite. He says, you need to deny yourself. Well, what is the self? The self can be broken into two parts, authority and ambition. If you're getting at the heart of what the self is, what the center of you is. Ambition is, well, this is what I'm passionate about. This is what I'm excited about. This is what I want. And when you come to Christ, that has to change. Do you see? Jesus gives you a new ambition. Take up your cross, follow me. The new ambition and the new authority are found in two words, follow me. The, the controlling ambition in my life is now to follow Christ. And the controlling authority in my life is no longer myself, but it's Christ. But then he says one other thing. Look here, it gets harder. If anyone, here we're in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But then look what he says, verse 35. For whoever, notice the other broad call, for whoever would save his life 
will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So he talks now about losing your life. Now, it's interesting because in some accounts, Jesus says, some places Jesus says, if you lose your life, you will, like he says here, you will save it. Other places he says, and you go, what does it mean to save your life? Well, in other places he clarifies, if you lose your life, you will find it. What does that mean? Well, first of all, he appeals to good desires. This is a common thing Jesus does, right? He says in other places, if you want to be rich, we're all like, okay, yeah, that's me. He says, then store up treasure in heaven. Oh, okay, not the application I was thinking of. Um, and then another time he says, if you want to be great, and everyone, okay, I'd like to be great. Okay, then be a servant of all. Okay, not the application I was looking for. Here, if you want to save your life or find your life, and I believe those are the same things, you need to be willing to lose it. Now, this is the language of sacrifice. Let me explain. The best definition, I don't know who first said this, the best definition of sacrifice I've ever heard is, I give up something I love for something I love even more. All the stories of sacrifice that we love, that's what happens. Somebody loved something, maybe their own life, and they gave it up for something that they loved even more. And Jesus says, if you lose your life, you'll find it. It's like, do we believe that? Well, we, should, we, we could say something like, well, you know, it's the Bible and Jesus said it, so it's true. But I think, it's, I think we can know this a little bit by experience. So think about this. When a single guy or a single gal gets married, what happens? They lose their life. I don't even remember. I've been married 12 years. I don't even remember what it was like to be single. I can't, I'm trying to picture what that was like. I, 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 right? and, and every, I've only talked to guys more, but when a guy gets married, he, like, he realizes, I lost my life. <laughs> she wants to go to bed at the same time every night. She wants me to come home after work instead of going to the gym. But what you realize is, well, two became one, and if you're thinking about this biblically, and if you're working on your marriage, you actually realize what I gave up, yes, I lost something, but what I found was even better. What happens when you have a kid? You lose your life. <laughs> Anyone who doesn't have a kid, you lose your life. <laughs> right? And we all know this. We've all experienced it. And every parent has to deal with that. Like there's excitement and it's like I'm losing sleep. I'm losing my mind, right? <laughs> what happens every time you enter a career path? Like let's take a very professional career path. Like, you know, people, and there's several of you in here that are, are doctors. It's like, man, you just, I just talked to a guy. He just got into medical school. He's so excited. You think about that. Okay, well, now you're going to give four years of medical school, and you're going to be very busy. And then you're probably going to give at least three, maybe five years to residency, and if you want to do some special thing, you'll give another two to five years to fellowship. Why would you do that? If you're looking at a short window, it, it seems foolish. If you, if you don't think about the future, it seems foolish. Why would you waste your youth? Why would you take age 22 to 35 and be as busy as you are? It's like, well, do you do that? I'm losing my life in, in one sense to gain something else. I'm losing my youth to gain this other skill set. So we get it. Jesus is saying, are you willing to lose your life and in some way you end up finding it, but it's an act of faith? In the same way, it's hard to explain how when you become single and you get married, you lose your life. Or when you have a kid, you lose, your li you lose your life. It's something that can't be explained as much as it's experienced, which leads to the final thing Jesus says. He ends with this. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man be also ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So gaining the world, I'm always just reading this like I would any document, any text. Gaining the world must be the same thing as saving your life. That's how people try to save their life in this life. They try to gain the world. What does that look like? Well, there's versions of it, but there's probably a common version. Like, what if you had the best house? Okay, even better, the best houses. And what if you had the most awesome spouse? And what if your kids just were awesome and they were also good at athletics and they were good at academics? What if you had one of those awesome jobs? They're hard to find, but you make a lot of money and it's meaningful and you work with people you love and you have enough time off to actually still have a family life. We all have like some, every society tells you what it would be like to gain the world. And Jesus is saying, what would it profit you if you gain the world and you lose your soul? What I want us to see as we close here is that Jesus points us to an eternal perspective if we're going to live a cross-shaped life. And he does it by talking about our soul and the final judgment. Do you see that? Those are, the, those are the last two things Jesus motivates us with. The truth is you are not, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You're not really even a body with a soul. If we wanna be theologically technical, you're a soul with a body. How do I know that? Because at death, your soul and your body go in separate directions. Your body's going into the ground to be resurrected. Your soul, that's you, is heading to meet God. So when you realize I have an immaterial, invisible, eternal me, and every person I meet also has a soul, and they're going to live somewhere forever, it changes you. And then Jesus points us at the end to the final judgment. Do you see what he says? He says, if anyone's ashamed of me, now we don't use that word ashamed, so how's this word? Because it's the same word, embarrassed. Why are we so embarrassed about Jesus Christ in the gospel? Do you remember being embarrassed? I remember the first time I was embarrassed about Jesus. I was a brand new Christian, and I got a free Bible from a lady. She gave me a, it's a long story, but she gave me this little Bible, and she put my name on it. I was a brand new Christian. She was excited for me, so she bought me this nice little Bible, and I loved it. It was in my backpack, and I read it all the time. And I was probably six months in the Lord, and I'm in TV productions class in 11th grade, and my Bible falls out of my backpack. And Brian picks it up, and I'm in public high school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Brian begins to make fun of me with my little Bible, with my golden name in cursive. And I just remember feeling so small. And I feel so embarrassed. And Jesus tells us why we're ashamed. There's nothing shameful about Jesus Christ. There's nothing to be embarrassed about Jesus Christ. We're embarrassed because we live in a sinful and adulterous world. What would your life look like if you weren't embarrassed about Jesus? If you talked about him more. And if you really realize, wait a second, the cross is the only way, you know? Sometimes people say, why is there only one way to God? Is there only one way to God? It's like, listen. People say, can there be more than one way to God? Can there be multiple paths to heaven? 
Jesus had that conversation with God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you want to know, where is that conversation? Are there more ways than one? Is there more than one way to get to God? That conversation happened in the garden, and God's, the Father's answer was, I'm sorry, there's not. This is why Jesus had to go to the cross. And so when you read all this, here's what we realize when we sum it up. <laughs> following Jesus Christ is costly. The only thing more costly is not following Jesus Christ. Following Jesus Christ is costly. The only thing, from an eternal perspective, more costly than following Jesus Christ is not following Jesus Christ. See, the Bible tells us that every Christian is both Simon of Cyrene and Barabbas. You know those stories? Simon of Cyrene was the man who was called to help carry Jesus' cross. And Barabbas was the man who was let free because Jesus went to the cross. And as we close, I want us to think about what does this mean for us? And I wanna give us three categories, okay? And just in a minute, I'm gonna ask you just to bow your heads, close your eyes. And if you feel comfortable, I'm gonna ask you just to go like this. This is like a, I do this sometimes when I pray. It's kind of like a Lord, I give this to you. It's, it's weird. Sometimes you'll do something with your body and you'll feel it with your soul sometimes. It's just that I wanna be open-handed. We wanna be an open-handed church. And so if you'd close your eyes and if you feel comfortable, palms up, I want you to just think about three things with me as we close. Uh, how do you take a passage like this? Well. Theologians talk about, out of this passage, there are three deaths the Bible talks about. First, the Bible talks about a death to sin. And that happens when you give Jesus your sin and yourself. That happens when you're born again. That happens when you confess Jesus publicly. And if you've never done that, I wanna invite you to do that right now. It's a death to sin. The second type of death the Bible talks about is the death to self, and that takes your whole life. And the death to self happens as you repent. As you say no to your former and your false self, and as you take up your cross and as you carry it. But the Bible also talks after a death to sin and it talks about a death to self. There's a third category that happens and it's the death to safety. And I don't know how else to understand the apostle Paul's words when he says, I die every day. The death to safety is a willingness to be unashamed of Jesus Christ. It's a willingness to no longer be embarrassed. And it's a willingness to embrace voluntary suffering to bring the good news of Jesus to other people. Lord, we lift ourselves up to you, Lord. We know what you're trying to do and what we're trying to do as a church is create a type of person. A person that's the exact opposite of the American spirit. A person who is cross-centered in their faith, who the cross is the symbol of their life. And a people who are cross-shaped, Lord, would you help us? We can't do this apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this apart from the grace of God, Lord. And we see in the life of Jesus that it was always joy that led to pain, but on the other side of that pain was more joy, Lord. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Lord, help us to be cross-centered and cross-shaped in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.